Those of you who are in the book of Revelation, let's start off. Let's head there. Chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Revelation chapter 1. While they're uh, exiting and people are getting set for the other classes, let's just see if our brains are awake this morning. Name a specific event where you ought not to be laughing. Something going on that it's not a good thing to be laughing. A funeral. Anything else? What's that? Sermons? Oh, never. Never, Lou. Okay. Any other things? Can you think of any other occasion you ought not to be laughing? An accident. Okay. Here's what they said. A driver's test. Okay. One, a wedding. A court case when you're on trial. It's probably not best. When you're stopped by the police. And then a funeral was number one. Name an item people save up money to buy. Cars. Groceries. <laughs> uh, what else did you have? Yeah? Yeah, here's what they said. A phone, computer, vacation, wedding ring, car, and number one was a house. One for you, name an appliance that you might forget to shut off before you leave. Okay. The appliance, what is it? Curling iron? I have a real tough time remembering those. I usually forget mine. Okay. Mine's natural. Is it, is it curling? <laughs> uh, okay, let's stop. <laughs> let's get back to the, the, the question here. <laughs> the lights, anything else? What's that? Coffee maker? Okay. They said radio, stereo, space heater, TV, hair iron, uh, Hair iron, yes. And the oven was number one. Name a child's first you record. Steps. Smile, if you can catch it, yeah. Okay, okay. They had Christmas, birthday, words, and steps. Name a food that people are allergic to. Oh, you got them all. Look at this. Look at that. Soy, wheat, dairy, shellfish, nuts. Number one. You're right. Coconut is number one. Absolutely. Okay. If you're not, you should be. Uh, <laughs> we are in the book of Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter one. Where we were last time is we were just talking about that idea that John, in the very beginning of the chapter, he sees this vision that he's going to have, and he's introduced in this section where he turns around and he sees Jesus Christ, where um, he says, hello, my name is John, and he says, um, verse one, 9, uh, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, was in the Isle of Patmos for the word of God. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. And then he hears the, the voice saying, I'm Alpha, Omega, the first, the last. What you see, write in a book, and it was to be sent to the seven churches. He names the churches. I turned to see the voice that spake to me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the candlesticks, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to his foot, and then he had this golden girdle on, his head, his hair is white like wool, and he goes on the flame of fire from his face, his feet like undefined brass, and as they burn in a furnace, his voice is the sound of many waters, in his right hand the stars, and out of his mouth went two-edged sword. Um, and he goes on, he says, his countenance was like the sun when it's at its peak. When I saw him, I fell down as dead, and he laid his hand and said, Fear not. And so he makes this, this encounter with Jesus and this vision. And we were talking about why is it that he reacted the way that he reacted. And you've made several different observations. His unworthiness, his, his awestruck by the greatness of Christ. And so we put it all together, and then we started saying, okay, in this section of Scripture, in this chapter, it talks about Christ's authority, his appearance, his activities, his awareness, and we talked about his authority. We were looking at different verses, and there was different phrases, different words, all the way through this section that highlighted his authority. Do you remember any of them? Or if you look down, let's just jump to, uh, say, um, verse 8. Anything there that stresses authority? Any phrases? Okay. The Almighty would. Anything else there? It would make sense to somebody back then. The Alpha 
and omega, okay? Um, would you see anything that would stress authority in, say, verse 18? That would show power, authority. How he describes himself, verse 18. Okay, he has the keys, the authority. What else did somebody say? Okay, he was dead, but he's alive. So we go through that, and throughout that section, there's these different ideas about his power that's highlighted. And we looked at those, okay, that he has the authority to exalt others. He's holding the seven stars uh, in his hands. He's in the candlesticks, which he says at the, uh, at the verse 20 that they're representative of the seven churches that he's writing to. Then we talked about his appearance, and we were highlighting all these different thoughts, and we talked about his hair, his eyes, and our comment was that all of it put together, he is a lot different than what we normally picture, okay? Be, the pictures that we have usually don't portray Christ in this brilliance and greatness. He's usually pure, still pictured in his humanity. And in fact, in the scriptures through the Gospels, he's presented as humble, and, and in a good way, and in a proper way. But he was humble as a babe. He was a woodworker. He was gentle. He was suffering. And all of a sudden, he's now presented as a powerful ruler, a judge, which he is both. And so we had that where we stopped and we said last week, when we worship, let's think about who Christ is even now in his greatness. And so uh, question is, and there's, it's going to talk about his activities. Is Jesus angrier than he was when he was on earth? Is Jesus done with the world and ready to destroy it? Is Jesus still caring? Is he patient? Is he merciful? Is he disconnected? Is he intolerant? You know, we're in his attitude now, in his activities, is he ready to wipe out the world? Yes, no? Okay. Is, it, is he all this? Is he disconnected? Okay. Okay, so let's look at just... And now, it's not going to be in chronological verse order, but let's take a general idea here. His activities, he is seen and described in verse 5. He's a redeemer. And so John wants us to understand. Remember, John is writing to the churches, and in the churches could be people that are not yet born again. He'll talk about that at the end of the book. He that hath an ear, let him... And come and drink of the... Water of life. Okay, and so he's talking mostly to believers, but he's also describing what's going to be happening, that people might go to this book and they might consult it, even, say, during the tribulation time to figure out what's coming next. And so he's going to highlight that Jesus is a redeemer from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. What in that verse highlights his redemptive work? What stresses it? What phrases? Okay, the washed, okay, and, you know, the idea that we're washed in his blood. Any other phrases there? that would highlight his idea of redemption. It's in, earlier in the verse. He's the first begotten. What's that mean? The first begotten from the dead. What's he referring to? The first to rise from the dead. Okay, excellent. And so he's the idea that he is there. He is making us a kingdom of priests, okay, and of kings, which is redeeming us from where we're at. And so what stands out is he is the one able to do this. Again, another scriptural truth, he's the only one. He does the work. Not that we're, we're you know, hand in hand and we make it happen. He does the work in the redeeming aspect. He's a reassurer. What, ha- what happens in verse 17 is, I fell down and saw him as dead at his feet. I, yeah, I fell down... At, at his feet as if I were dead. And he laid his right hand, and he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is an important aspect that he is reassuring John. Okay? And he does this reassuring. The reason that I bring this up, he has no desire to harm John. Okay? Even after all this time, he's going to show compassion to John in his trials. He says to John, Write to the churches. 
and his whole demeanor here is he's involved, or his, um, his location. He is moving around the seven candlesticks, which he says are the seven churches, and he's holding the stars, the messengers, to those churches in his hand. What does that say to the churches who are going to be reading the messages? Where Jesus is just portrayed and in activity. What, what assurance does it give to the churches? Any? He's holding them? Okay. Okay. Anything else? He knows them? Okay. Excellent ideas. Okay. That he's in the midst there. He hasn't abandoned them. Because what is going on in the world for the churches? What happened to John? Why is he at Patmos? Persecution. What's happening to the churches? Persecution's taking place. And so it's very important that he's presented this way. His royalty is presented in the entire text. He's called the Almighty. He's called the Prince. He's called the Son of Man, which Son of Man is the Old Testament terminology from Ezekiel and Daniel, who is the King of God's kingdom. That's the Son of Man aspect. And so he's seen with his power of the sword out of his mouth, holding the uh, churches. And so when we look at it and say, okay, it's clear he's prepping to take over. Okay, he's, in a, he's anxious to do this. He rules even in the churches, but he's going to be ruling over all the world. Somebody said last week that you understood the sword from his mouth to be an idea of not just judgment, but protecting the churches. Who would he be protecting the churches from? Who's Christ protecting Satan, okay? Um, does that mean, this, this gets into sticky stuff, does that mean that the churches are, if he's protecting them, that they will never undergo physical elimination? So if he's protecting, can they still die? Do people still die under persecution? Yes, no? Okay then what good is Christ protecting us? Okay, let's bring in the eternal aspect there. Okay, because who can, who can destroy the body? Can Satan have that authority and power at times? Yes, but what can't he control? or destroy. Can't do the soul. And so he can protect us, not... And we, we usually think in, this, in a small sphere. We think... Here and now, physical and time. We're, when we think protection, we automatically think, you know, from physical things. But there's the spiritual aspect, and especially from being separated from God. Um, let's move on here. His returning is mentioned in verse 5. In fact, it talks about... Um, I'm sorry, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they shall know him who he's pierced. And it's interesting, it's in the present tense, he is coming, but it's in the book of futuristic concepts. So is Christ coming in the clouds one day? Oh, absolutely. And so the one time he's going to come and stop in the clouds, the other time he's going to come all the way down to planet Earth. And then when he comes that second time to planet Earth at the end of the tribulation, then every eye shall see him and they shall wail. So he's not done with us. He's coming back soon. Men are going to have to deal with him. This is where our culture doesn't get it. People today just think that Christ is in heaven and they'll just go on, go on, and go on. They're going to be accountable to Christ. It's very important that we relay that to our families, our households, our church friends. It's important that we remind ourselves that we have to give an account to Christ one day. And so what else is stressed here is he's a rewarder. Um, for some people, it's going to be a positive reward. He makes people kings and priests in the kingdom. And so when we get to the kingdom, which is in the last few chapters of the book, there's going to be a thousand-year kingdom here on earth after this period called the tribulation. And when we get there, we're going to be kings and priests. We're going to be there uh, in the fact that we're going to be engaged with helping to rule if we've been faithful now. And so that's going to be positive for us. For others... It's not going to be a positive time because right before that kingdom starts, 
What happens to all the people alive on planet earth at that moment? There is going to be the sheep goat judgment. And those who are not a part of him, uh, his uh, belief, those who followed Antichrist, where do they end up? They don't go in the kingdom. They end up in hell. Okay, and so there's going to be a wailing because think about it. If in this, you know, just portray uh, something silly. Portray that you had nothing to do with Jesus. You follow Antichrist, and you're at the end of the tribulation. You survived everything, and who's going to be coming out of heaven? Okay, Jesus. Who's with him? All the saints are coming with him. What do the people on planet Earth do? No, they, they, don't, uh, they don't hide at this moment. Okay, they're going to start shooting at Christ. Literally, they're going to start warfare against Jesus coming down out of heaven. Is that kind of stupid when you think about it? it yeah, I mean, <clears throat> what would compel somebody to think this supernatural person descending out of heaven, you have the ability to destroy him? Okay, um, but again... Are we stupid today in some concepts? I mean, does stupid reign in in lack of common sense at times? Okay. And so the people at that time are going to fire upon him. Can you imagine what they... Well, you put the words to it. What would you feel if you see this heavenly being who's glowing, he's coming out of heaven, there's a huge army following him, and you're shooting at him, and he comes all the way down... What would you feel towards that person? You, can't, you haven't been able to destroy him. What would be your gut emotion at that moment? Fear? Okay. And you're just a panic. What are we going to do? And so when he comes, okay, um, again, people are going to answer to him. And some people will have regrets, tremendous regrets. Okay, they're going to wail when he comes because they would have known. And yet at this passage and at this time, he's saying, here's how I'm, here's how I'm going to come. Why hasn't he come yet? What is the only reason why he's, he's delaying? Okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's out of mercy and grace. Because when he comes, it's an end to what? Those people having choice. Okay, um, and so, yeah, and then to all of their corruption, their evil, and then it's judgment day, so mercy is just abundant. Um, his awareness is the last thing. We had his appearance. We had his authority. We're talking about his activities. Now his awareness how is this pictured in this text that and you're, you're the part of the seven churches getting the letter? We're part of the generations after getting the letter. What in this chapter shows you that Jesus is aware of what's going on in our lives? Anything that we've read, that we've mentioned? Okay. Okay, well, let's just, let's just go back to verse 3. What is he aware of? Uh, I'm not, not verse 3, verse 1, verse 1. What is he aware of? According to verse 1, that, that is unique. Okay. He's aware of his children, okay? We may not know all of them. What else is he aware of that nobody else is aware of? He sees the future. He's aware of the future, what shortly must come to pass. When we go over to that idea of, <coughs> excuse me, when we go over to, where is he in verse 13? In the midst of the seven candlesticks, the Son of Man. And then we jump down to verse 20. The mystery of the stars which you saw in the seven candlesticks, they are the angels or messengers of the churches, and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. What did we already say just minutes ago? That, sh- that he's aware of in the standing in the midst of the candlesticks. What's he aware of? I know this is tough. It's Sunday morning. Okay. Well, he's aware of all the evil. But when it comes to the churches, what's he aware of? Okay, he's aware of the preachers, the messenger. He's aware of their needs. Okay. 
He's giving them information that they want. So he's in the midst of them. And what it reveals is he personally knows because he's near us. Even though we don't see him, is he with us this morning? How do we know that? Where two are gathered, I am in the midst. Okay, so he knows everything. Hey, one of you guys at the back, would you get the remote and drop that, that uh, the sun has come out, okay? And it's a distraction. Somebody know what to do? Pat, do you know how to... Pat? Yo, Pat Leibick. Okay. Can we drop those, the window blinds, please? Jay, you know where it's at otherwise? Thank you. Um, he accurately can analyze this. Now, think this through. I'm not going to study these seven churches at this point. Um, but just, just that one side is good. Um, but the seven churches, watch what shows up a lot. He says, you're rich, you're poor, you're poor, you're rich. He has a personal message to each one of them. He analyzes what's their needs personally. Would we, might we have a t- totally different need us as a church than, say, a church in Africa? Yes, no? Okay, okay. But he knows them. In fact, I want to thank you so much. Uh, I want to jump a little bit further into this because I found it very interesting just glossing now into chapter 2, chapter 3. Okay? He's going to write the seven different churches. When he writes the churches, he makes it clear that he has a special message. Just look at the beginning of each one of the, the churches. Under the, he says, chapter 2, verse 1, unto the church of the angel of Ephesus. He says the same thing in verse 8. Unto the messenger, the angel, uh, could be the, the messenger could be pastor. Unto the pastor, the leader of the church of Pergamos. Unto the angel of the church of Thyatira. He has a personal message for each one one of them. What does he say in the very beginning of those personal messages that is repeated every time? Just kind of watch. These things saith he that holds the seven candlesticks, who walks in the midst of the seven. I know thy works, the labor, thy patience. Let's jump down to verse 8. Unto that church, these things says he, the first and the last. I know thy works, thy tribulation, thy poverty. I know the, blas- the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews. Jump down to verse 12. To the church... Uh, angel of the church of Pergamos, these things saith he that has the sharp two-edged sword. I know thy works, where you dwell, even where Satan's seed is. 18. Under the church of Thyatira, these things saith he, the son of man, who has, a son of God, excuse me, his eyes like unto a flame of fire, his feet like brass. I know thy works, thy charity, thy service, thy faith. Jump down to verse chapter 3. Under the church of the, in Sardis, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know thy works, that you have a name, that you live. Verse 7, to the church of Philadelphia, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath key of David, uh, and no man shuts. I know thy works, behold, I have set an open door before thee. Verse 14, under the uh, angel of the church of Laodicea, these things says the amen, the faithful, the true, the beginning of the creation of God, I know thy works, that you are neither hot nor cold, etc., etc. Did you see any consistencies in every single one of those openings? Okay, one is he's giving a message to the leader of the church that's to be passed on. Then what did he do? Okay, He's every one of those introductions says, I know thy works. I know your love. I know you intimately. Something else that he did as well. What did he do in, in between unto the uh, pastor? I know thy whatever, ever. What's, what did he do every time, but he was different? He described himself. And he used a lot of the descriptive terms that came from chapter 1. Okay, And so it's interesting that in this message, he is then stressing to each one of them after he says, I'm the one behind this, the great one in some way. I know you. I know everything about you. I know your works. I know your deeds. I know your thoughts. I know some of you are pretending. I know some of you who are doing things in private. And so he stresses that. And so then he gives a message. Some are positive. A couple are. The bulk of them are negative. And he's giving them a rebuke to it. And then he concludes this entire section with a very familiar text that all of us are familiar with. Go to chapter 3, verse 20. 
as he wraps up, he makes this illustration. Behold, I stand at the door and... Okay. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down, set down at my father's throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So when he does this, and this is an invitation that is open, okay, what's his point? Why does he wrap up with that? What, what's he driving at? What's he want? Okay. Let me, let me refer, let, let's do this. Who's he talking to? Is he talking, he's talking to, okay. Is he, who's he primarily talking to? Primarily the church. Okay. How do we normally apply this illustration? How do we use it typically? We usually, we usually direct it to the lost people. That he stands at your door knocking. Right? And that's, is that an improper application? No, it's not improper. Okay? It's, it's, is it legitimate to say to somebody, the Lord is knocking at your heart? Okay? And then what does everybody, I'm going to say everybody, what do they add to the, to the illustration that's not in the scriptures? What do they always point out on the door? I'm saying this and then nobody's responding, so my always is shot. Okay. Yeah, that, did you hear that stressed ever? There's no door handle, which means you can't open, or he, he won't open it. It has to be open from the... Okay, there's nowhere in scriptures that it says there is no door handle. But it's a neat thing because the reality is still the same that you have to, he makes it clear, you have to open the door. The, he, he states that, okay? And so in the application, the primary application is the seven churches. In fact, he says in verse 22, hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. We typically... And, and again, I don't think we're in error doing it, but we typically use it as an illustration for salvation. What if, if we take the primary point, the primary applicant that he stresses, he's talking to us. What's he talking about then? We're already saved. Okay? Being right with him? Fellowship with him? Okay? What do you do when you sup with somebody? You're going to sit there and talk. Normally, unless you're an old married couple sitting in a restaurant and you're just you know, eating and there's no conversation. Or, worse yet, what do most people do anymore in a restaurant? Okay, okay. <laughs> but what is the idea back in, the, back in those days and even today? When we get together and we sit down and eat, what is our purpose? Fellowship. Fellowship, sharing, conversation. And it's usually intimate. When we're sitting there and talking over a meal, we get more than, how you doing? How'd your day go? Usually we talk more about than just the here now. We start sharing interests. We start sharing more of our life. And so Jesus is talking about in this text that he's promising, he says, hey, listen, if you, if you open the door for communion... You let me have fellowship with you. If you do that, I'm going to come in. I'm going to spend time with you. And so, I, the, and again, it's, it's salvation is great, but he's talking about this idea of believers having a lengthy communion time with him. Fellowship. Which I like personally to use this and say, this is for the lost, and kind of just skip over my responsibility according to this verse. My responsibility, personally, is to take more time for fellowship with the Lord. That's what he's driving at. It makes perfect sense because back in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Those of you who read, who hear, who understand, I will bless you abundantly. And that's what he's driving at. And that's what he keeps saying unto the churches. He that hath an ear, 
let him hear. And he's saying it typically to believers. Why does he say to believers, open the door? Why does he say to believers, he that hath an ear? Because we don't. We don't. We get so preoccupied with whatever. Yeah. And so he challenges, and so he's patiently waking and knocking for us. So his major desire and activity during the time of the churches, this is it. While the church is on earth, he wants communion with us. And that doesn't, that doesn't discount the idea that the lost have to open up their heart's door to him. Now, what I find interesting is the chapter ends with a door that is shut. Chapter 3 ends. Okay, you have an opportunity, but it's a shut door. He's waiting, and he leaves it open-ended. We don't have any clue, you know, how it's going to play out for people on earth who are in control of a door. What's chapter 4 start with? Chapter 4 it begins with an open door. From who? Mankind can keep the door shut, but what does God do? I saw a door that was open where? In heaven. So Jesus opens up a door. It's, it's kind of a, an interesting contrast that as, he, as John writes, he says, okay, now let's broaden this. Let's say, I see an open door in heaven. And he hears a voice that's like a trumpet in chapter 4. And he says, as it were, a trumpet talking with me that said, come up hither and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately... He says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one that sat upon him. So he sees, or he hears this voice like a trumpet, which he has already said in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus spoke like a trumpet. His voice was that, that compelling. And so then he goes on, he's called up into heaven immediately, and now he's going to have this vision of what's happening in heaven. And God is saying, I'm going to show you everything that is going to happen hereafter. And the first thing that he focuses on is... Now, when we think, tell me what's going to happen in the future, what's the first thing that we start talking about? The rapture, the tribulation, the stuff here. The very first uh, concern that John has, Christ has, in revealing the future is to point to who? Do you see what he says? First thing he sees. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one that sat upon the throne. He that sat was to look upon like jasper and sardine stone. There's a rainbow round about this throne, in the sight like unto an emerald. When we talk future, Jesus says, the first thing I want you to get, John, is God. God, heaven. Who's in control? Okay, uh, if we can put it. So this is the beginning of the prophetic section. That's clear. That's very clear that now we're into that spot. It starts with a vision of somebody sitting on a throne in heaven. Why? Why does Jesus stress this as the very first thing talking about the future? He's in control. Any other thoughts? He's most important. So who is who else? Okay, okay. So he's been dealing with the earthly things of right and wrong. Now we're dealing with you know that which is truth, spectacular. I, I just I find it interesting that this is where he starts. Okay, and I'm going okay. Why is he going to emphasize the power, the greatness, the authority of God and Jesus over all things? Because he's God. He deserves to be the center of our attention. He's in charge of everything. This is true, okay? <clears throat> and John is going to believe, John is going to relay this stuff, everything, as if it will happen. He is convinced it's going to happen. Why is John so convinced it's going to happen? Because he got it from the mouth of Jesus Christ. He got it from the mouth of God. And so the answer is, God's in control. Let's start off with everything. Um, and when, and we, okay, let, let's, let's pretend without getting into deep politics, okay? And, you know, talking different uh, political point of views. Have elections always thrilled you, the results of elections? 
No, have you ever after an election went, what in the world? Yes, no? Okay, that's me. Okay, this is, this is my personal opinion. How do we elect somebody who is struggling cognitively, you know, um, to be our senator? How is this possible, you know, that, that we would do that to the poor guy? And so I, I get befuddled, and I'm going, what in the world, but what do I have to recall every time? God's in control. If he is setting up for the end times, this makes perfect sense. Okay. But God is in control. And, that, and with him in control, does that mean everything will always be good and hunky-dory? No. But he's still in control. And so he starts off, and he's going to describe the throne. That's the first thing he sees. He sees a throne. You and I need to just say, okay, who is on this throne? And we can jump right in and say, well, it's, let's make sure we understand who it is on the throne. To be very specific, okay? And just to remind you, this is a recurring uh, illustration um, uh, site, excuse me, a recurring site throughout the book of Revelation. Forty-six times the throne is mentioned, which all the way through, what is that to remind us of? Well, what should, as we're reading through these terrible things that are happening, what should be the, remi- re- the reminder whenever we read the throne? God's in control. God's in control. And so I think God in his wisdom, John in his cleverness, they put together that this writing is, there's a throne, the throne of God, the throne of God, the throne of God. God's in control. God's in control. Okay. Um, So who is sitting on the throne? Well, we get a little bit of a clue, okay, in um, where we we read in chapter 3, verse 21. It's already been mentioned. Who has a throne in heaven? Okay. Jesus is pictured sitting next to, but who does he define as having the throne? God the Father. Okay, in that verse. When he goes a little bit further, the one who is sitting on the throne, jump down to chapter 5, verse 1. I saw, the, I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written therein. And who is worthy to open the book. No man is worthy. And then, all of a sudden, verse 5, one of the elders says, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, to loose his servants. And I beheld, lo, in the midst of the throne, the beast, there stood a lamb that was slain. He came and took the book. So who are we distinguishing now? The throne sitter is different than... Who's the lamb? Okay, we got, we got that one. Okay, then Christ. What do the, uh, the creatures, what are they doing towards this throne sitter? We have in verse 9 that they are crying, they are bowing and giving glory and honor and thanks forever. We have in verse 10 the elders that they're calling out <coughs> and casting their thrones before him. So we're giving this person on the throne, put in a word, we're giving him Glory, worship, okay, whatever. So how long does he live according to verse 9? The one who's on the throne. He lives forever and ever, okay? So clearly, clearly this person who is exalted above Christ is God the Father. So we have God the Father sitting on the throne that he is going to start describing. And as he is describing, John says, okay, Around this throne, <clears throat> not only does he give a description of him, but something else caught John's eye. Okay? Let, let's do it this way. Okay? He catches a rainbow. What is different about this rainbow? What's that? Okay, it's emerald. It's green-based. Okay? Anything else? It's a whole circle. It's not an arc, but it's a complete circle. <clears throat> Anything else that strikes you? <clears throat> okay, it's not a weather event. Okay, it's there. Um, when's the storm come? In the book. In the book. When's the storm come? Before or after the rainbow? 
The storm I'm talking about is just all the upheaval. It comes after. When do nor- rainbows typically show up? Okay. This time the rainbow is first, and then we have all of the stuff afterwards that uh, is there. And so you start looking and saying, okay, this is very interesting. How do, what does the rainbow immediately, if you know your Bible at all, what's it take you to? <clears throat> what event in history? The flood. Okay, why? For somebody who isn't familiar with that, why do you say that? Okay, at the end of the flood of the world, God put a rainbow in the sky, and when he put the rainbow, what did he promise? I'll never, I'll never destroy the earth with, with a flood. Does he do that in the book of Revelation? No. What's he destroy the world with? Fire, okay. So, but he's, he's, gonna, he's, he's reminding that God made a covenant, and how long do God's promises last? Okay, so we have a reminder of God's promise, God's faithfulness. Okay, what else does John see? As he's starting to go through this, John sees 24 elders. Okay, he starts describing them, and we'll pick up some of this description here in a moment. Oh, excuse me. Uh, He says in verse 4, Round about the throne were 24 seats. And upon the seats I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white raiment. They had on their head crowns of gold. Then we jumped further in the chapter. And the four and 24 elders fell down before him that sat on the throne. And they worshipped him for, uh, that lives forever and ever. And cast their crowns before his throne saying, O Lord, to re- you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things and for that pleasure they are and were created. So the question comes, okay... Let's, where are these people? Okay, in this picture, you got the throne in the middle. Where are the 24? Okay, they're surrounding this, this throne, and they're sitting on the seats, apparently some seats of authority, and this seat or throne, you know, is, and it's used sometimes as throne, the word translated, the word that's used here. The question becomes, who are they? Okay, um... There are, amongst different Bible scholars, there's at least 13 suggestions that are promoted of who these could be. Um, Of those suggestions, the five that are most commonly written about or you can find online, pick up commentaries, would be these. There are 12 Old Testament and and the 12 patriarchs and 12 New Testament apostles representing the redeemed of all the ages. Okay? Possibility. Which 12? We don't know of the Old Testament, just 12 patriarchs. Some suggest there are 24 great saints from the Old Testament. Which ones? We really don't know. Um, some suggest they're angelic council, like he talks about the angels that were in his throne room when he created, so some suggest that it's angelic. Um, some suggest that it's some special human priest who were chosen to be able to do the 24 worship order. Do you remember when David set up the temple? There was a 24 rotation uh, setup that he had created. And so since we are priests, it's 24 human beings from some time period and for what reasons, unknown. Then there is the view that says this is a representation of the church. All who are in part of the bride of Christ are the church. My personal opinion is the last that I agree with. And the reason that I personally agree with that is because in chapter 5, verse 9, they sing as part of the 24 elders' song, we were redeemed from every kindred, tongue, people, tribe, nation. That takes out the Old Testament Jews. That takes out the angels. So this would be referring to church-age people who were saved from all different tribes and tongues. As well, they're made to be priests and kings, which Peter describes we are made to be in the sight of God, our own priests, and to be able to go to God, and we are called kings sitting with him. These people have on their head stephanoi, not diadem. They have stephanoi. Stephanoi, which is translated crowns, is more like the laurel wreath that was given at Olympic Games. That's a stephanoi. That would be a crown you would give an Olympic champion. Uh, today we don't give crowns, we give the gold medals. 
That's the same word that is used when it talks about you are my crown of rejoicing because of the soul winning aspect. James talks about that stephanoi if you endure during trials. Uh, stephanoi is given to those who are faithful pastors. Uh, stephanoi is given to those who love his appearing. And so every text that talks in the New Testament about believers getting crowns, it uses stephanoi. Stephanoi is used in this chapter, describing the 24 elders. As well, they're told to be, we have been told that we will rule and reign with Christ in the future. Multiple different texts that talk about that, that the church has that one. And uh, we are dressed in the same garments that he's already talked about, about the saints being dressed in the white garments when he's talked to the seven churches. And so it seems to me that this is the representation of the church. We're going to die on that one, on a hill, defending that? No. But it makes the most common sense that that's what they are. So the 24 elders representing the church who are in heaven, okay, before the tribulation starts, which is another consistency. What does John hear them doing? Okay, they're worshiping in songs, and then we cast our crowns to him and throw them there before him to worship him. So what else does John see? Okay, John says, okay, something else that caught his eye as he's talking about this is he jumps down to verse 5, and out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunders and voices, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so from the throne we have flashes of lightning and thunder. Okay, that is radiating from it. This happened, just for your information, this is exactly what Moses describes that he saw when he met God on Mount Sinai, that there was the thunderings, there was the flashing of the lightnings. When Ezekiel has a vision of God, he describes the same thing happening around the throne of God, that there's lightning and thundering. Why would that be? What does lightning and thundering typically do? Yeah. Okay, does it get attention? Okay, do we catch it? Yeah, does it amaze us? Okay, does it, does it make us go, whew? Okay, and so he's talking about this happening. And by the way, it shows up again, thundering and lightnings later on in the book when God is meeting out judgment. When he's opening up the vials, all of a sudden there's thunder and lightning that is happening at that same time. And so John says that when he, at one time in the book, he is going to see into the temple of God. When he looks into the temple that's in heaven, he sees thunder and lightning coming from the Holy of Holies. Again, representation of God, you have this natural... He's describing it, and he doesn't say, he says, as thunder and lightning. You've got these brilliant flashes. You've got this booming noise that's taking place that he describes as part of the vision. He also sees seven burning lamps. Some think it's menorah, okay, that it's like the candlesticks, which is a possibility. Others see them as floating lights that are burning lights. Is there any other time God... His presence was indicated by by fire. Okay, you have multiple different spots where his, there was a fiery presence that, that uh, in fact, even the Holy Spirit, when he comes down, what did they describe it as? Okay, like the flames of fire. And so uh, he identifies them. John gives us an ide- identification. They're the seven uh, spirits of God. What's he mean by that? Is, how many Holy Spirits are there? There's one. So what's he mean by the seven spirits? Um, And again, this is mentioned elsewhere. um, And we know that seven is this number often related to the complete work of God. Isaiah talks about the seven spirits of God. He talks about that being wisdom and understanding and all these different virtuous attributes. But basically, all in the spirit of God. But the spirit of God has almost a representation of multiple abilities or gifts that he can be given. And so in this setting, it seems to me that he's got a representation of Christ, who is the Lamb, a representation of the Father, who is sitting on the throne, and a clear representation of 
the Holy Spirit. So the entire Trinity is in there engaged in what's going to happen in the future. That makes perfect sense to all of us. What else he sees as you go on is he says, before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal and in the midst of the throne round about. This crystal sea um, is again one of those things we don't know for certain what it is. Okay, We're just going to grab other scriptures and see if we can make a comparison. Some say it's a literal ocean that God is upon this vast ocean in heaven. Others will say well, that can't be because in heaven there are no seas, Revelation 21.1. Is that what it, we're talking about or not talking about? Some would say when Moses and the elders had a vision of God, when they met with him on Mount Sinai, that there was a pavement like under this sapphire that was radiating or glowing or, uh, I don't know what word to use, mirror-like, but it was this, it appeared vast, uh, this, this approach to him. Um, so uh, it's like crystal, it's brilliant, it's glowing, it's sparkling, it's, you know, like, you know, something that's, again, radiating from him. And initial impression is it's vast, it's huge, which means that your initial impression is there's not a whole lot of people that are going to get close to him. But the church is within a close confine to him, which makes sense, by the way, because Jesus said, where I am, there will you know, we will be. And he promises the church a unique spot because what are we called later in the book? We are, what, what are we compared to that gives real intimacy to him? What's our title? The blank of Christ. The bride of Christ. Okay. So he sees that. And then he sees four living creatures. You probably, King James reads beasts. When I read beast, I think of ogres, something awful. So the literal translation is creatures. Okay. But he's having a tough time to describe them. He says, The first beast was like a lion. The second was like a calf. The third had a face of a man. The fourth, like a flying eagle. The four beasts each had six wings. And they're resting not. And they're going, Holy, holy, holy. Does any of that remind you of any other scriptures? Okay. Where? In, in what? Do you remember where or what? Okay. 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 Okay, okay. Uh, I'm going to jump you one book over, okay, or two books. Isaiah has the vision of the throne of heaven. And what are the angels singing? Holy, holy, holy. The question comes down to this is, who are these people or creatures? What are they? Okay. And we know they're all around this area of the throne. Okay? They're in that confines. But we're going to find out that they're also in this broad aspect. And since it's beyond time, we're going to stop right there. We're going to pick up next week. Give some thought to it. Read through who these are uh, or what they are. Are they something or some people very, very unique? We'll pick up next week.